and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast. Today it is the 18th of May 2020. We are still in the midst of a COVID pandemic and I am so happy to welcome back Hussein. Hello Hussein. Hello. How are you Hussein? I'm well thank you. Uh, Thanks very much for having me back. Uh, I've missed you guys. Uh, It's been good going back to clinical practice. Uh, I was enjoying myself for a few months and then this whole thing hit. It's been a crazy few months, hasn't it? Yeah, it's just very weird. Yeah, I know. But we're going to get a bit of normality back and we're going to do a podcast. Excellent. So, I'm going to give you a case. And as usual, you will know absolutely nothing about the patient that I'm about to present to you. Ready? Are you sure? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I have an 80-year-old man. Now, he presents to the emergency department with shortness of breath, which has been going on for about two weeks. He also has a cough productive of yellow sputum. He's had a bit of a fever and generally feels very, very unwell. He was handed over to me in the emergency department for urgent review because they were concerned about his respiratory rate and his oxygen requirements, which were quite high. I didn't look into anything else and I went straight in to see him. Now, this was only a month ago and I was in the emergency department. So again, I was gowned up, went in in the appropriate PPE and went in to see him and took a history, and yes, he had been short of breath. He did have a cough, a little bit of hemoptysis. He had some central chest pain, which was dull in nature, and that was there pretty persistently throughout the day, and was actually stopping him from sleeping. He was short of breath at rest and on exertion. He had PND and orthopnea, and found sleeping very, very difficult. He'd lost a little bit of weight over the last few weeks because he hadn't really been eating or drinking much. He'd had no diarrhoea and his bowels were normal for him. His urinary tract, he complained of no sort of bladder symptoms at all. However, he did have this persistent headache and this headache was really getting to him. He was taking paracetamol regularly but there was absolutely no improvement. And this headache was one of those headaches. It's like a band around the head. It doesn't matter what you do or what you take, you cannot get rid of the pain. Are you worried at this point? Yes. So (laughs) there's a number of things in that history which are concerning. uh, And particularly in this strange time, the first few symptoms he rolled off as would be termed by most people I know as classic COVID. Um, But there are some other subtle things in there that I think do ring some alarm bells, such as Mm -hmm. the weight loss, but also the headache uh, in the context of, you know, an illness which sounds like it could be infection. If he's got a high rest rate and a high oxygen requirement as well, that I'm not surprised that you saw him pretty urgently. He was actually the first person I saw on that shift so you know when you go in at eight o'clock and you think right I can have a 10 minutes just to sort of find my bearings but no I went straight into scene because um he was on when they were concerned about him on examination he looked ill so he's very dyspneic and his respiratory rate was 36 his blood pressure was 102 over 72 
His heart rate was 110 beats per minute and it was regular. And his oxygen saturations when I saw him were 98% on 15 litres of oxygen. However, prior to him being put on oxygen, they were 80% on air. So pretty low. His temperature was 37.8. His chest, globally, there was reduced air entry and there were creps at both bases. Heart sounds were normal. Abdomen was soft and non-tender. And he did have some pedal edema. Is there anything else you'd like to know at this stage? On examination, I suppose it's JVP. Was it up? JVP was elevated and it was around six centimetres. Okay. And neurologically, was there anything abnormal? No, completely intact neurologically. And also his GCS was 15 and he was fully orientated, able to hold normal conversation aside from his shortness of breath, which was he was having difficulty speaking in full sentences. Um, I mean, he sounds pretty sick. Mm-hmm. He has got some sort of respiratory failure by the sounds of things clinically, uh, either cardiac or respiratory driven. Mm-hmm. So unlike the usual ECG chest X-ray gas, if possible. Okay, yeah. So um, I'll do an EC. Well, did an ECG, and his ECG was a sinus tachycardia. There was no element of um, ischemic heart disease, or he's never had a previous MI. But there was some right bundle branch block. Okay. Sorry, what else did you say? You said chest X-ray. Yeah. So um, couldn't take him out for chest X-ray at the moment um, because there's somebody already in X-ray. Okay. So we'll come back to that. Fine. So from what you've told me, I'm or I'm sure everyone else is thinking the same as PE. Um, okay, yeah. Good so thought. hemoptysis, hemoptysis yep. shortness of breath, mm-hmm. some chest pain. He's mm-hmm. got a significant oxygen requirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may have some right heart strain mm-hmm. evidenced by his sinus tachy, right bundle branch block. And it sounds like he's in maybe in pulmonary edema or... Certainly, he's got some pedal edema. So, bypass okay. x ray, get a CTPA. Oh, okay. Yeah. Would you do a D dimer? Oh. <laughs> so, again, in these weird times, everyone yeah. is getting a D dimer. Suddenly, suddenly, people are paying attention to them. Yeah. I would say he's, in normal context, I would say he doesn't need a D dimer because he's high risk. Yeah, and his well score is going to be more than four, isn't it? Exactly. Um, so I'm not going to wait for a D-dimer. Okay. I'm just going to throw a spanner in the works now. We'd go back and look at his past medical history. And in 2014, six years ago, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And the lung cancer was treated with palliative radiotherapy. And his saw oncology six months previous to this admission. They were happy with his progress. The chest X-ray was absolutely fine, no concern at all. Um, and was it was just basically had follow-up every six months. Does that change anything? Hmm. I mean, my first thought is he's done well to uh, yeah. survive to 2020 if he was having palliative treatment for a lung cancer six mm. years previous. It does change things because even though he might have had a normal X-ray six months ago, 
Um, we do know that lung cancers, when they recur, can sometimes recur quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't have a disseminated malignancy elsewhere, outside of the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still thinking PE as well, but, um, you know, we have to have a look at his lungs, essentially. Mm-hmm. What, given the current climate, what other diagnosis could he have? Um, so the PE could be related to COVID. Um, yep. We know it's prothrombotic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think before you told me his ECG findings, I was also thinking myocarditis. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, yeah. It could be a normal bacterial pneumonia. Yeah. Um, it could also be flu. Yeah. Described a typical flu-like headache mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going a bit more niche, could he have uh, some other lung reaction causing uh, hemoptysis, such as a pulmonary hemorrhage? Okay. Uh, has he got some weird vasculitis, perhaps? Okay. And interesting that you mentioned the hemoptysis in that over the last sort of few months I have actually seen people with COVID who present with hemoptysis or they 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 have that when you ask about it and that you know that's probably part of the thromboembolic side of the COVID but also I mean who we don't really know what's going on in the lung tissue. It's probably important to uh, delve a bit deeper into what is the hemoptysis is yes. it fresh blood is it dark yeah. blood what's the mm-hmm. volume mm-hmm. Um, because as we know, persistent coughing can cause a bit of uh, wear and tear to the airways anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So it's important to differentiate that from, you know, this is the thing about hemoptysis, the differential can be varied. Absolutely. And on further questioning, it was spots of bright red blood in his sputum. He'd never coughed up a large amount. Um, it was just very tiny little spots. I'm going to give you some blood tests now. Yeah. So um, his full blood count revealed a white cell count of 10.88, a neutrophil count of 8.76. We had a lymphocyte count of 0.96, platelets of 290, a CRP of 177, a urea of 14.5 on a baseline of 8, and a creatinine of 126 on a baseline creatinine of 100. His liver function tests were normal and his bone profile, including calcium, were normal. Does that change anything? Not in the immediate sense, but recently with these types of patients, we've been asked as the frontline clinicians, are they red? Are they green? Mm-hmm. As in, are they suspected COVID or not? And one of the things that we've all been looking at closely is the lymphocyte count. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they're lymphopenic, again, that is one of the common things that we see with COVID, but not exclusively. Mm. I mean, you can get lymphopenia with any viral or bacterial infection. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the CRP raised, obviously there's something uh, accounting for that, as we've already discussed, infection or inflammation, and he's got an acute kidney injury. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, something that we see with coronavirus, it does have some renal impact but again so does most infections um so does heart failure that can push people into renal failure if they're hypo perfusing their kidneys mm-hmm. um so yeah this is 
already we've got two organs here that are affected. Mm -hmm. How would you manage this man at the moment in front of you? So he's got adequate oxygenation, albeit on quite a lot of uh, flow. Um, I probably would get a blood gas. I know that normally we're going on saturations these days, but for someone who's coming in with sats of 80% on room air, um, I'd want to see, or at least get a VBG so we can see what his acid balance is like. Um, is he acidotic? Is his CO2 raised? And with his renal failure, what is his base excess of bicarb? Is he potentially hyperkalemic as well? I think trying to get some imaging of his chest would be crucial. Mm -hmm. um, you want to see whether you can differentiate between fluid overload or infection, um, or indeed, is there a PE going on here? It's it's difficult because normally if there wasn't hemoptysis, you would consider giving him treatment dose uh, sort of anticoagulants anyway whilst you're waiting for the scans. But uh, until we can be sure that he's not actually bleeding from somewhere, um, I would be loath to go straight into that. Okay. Um, so you mentioned a chest X-ray. So what find I'm going back to episode one now, Hussein. What findings can you find on a chest X-ray for somebody who's had a PE? So in the most severe instances, you can see uh, infarcts. Potentially, you can see some wedge-shaped yeah. infarcts on an X-ray. Um, mm -hmm. You can see I'm looking for pulmonary edema, pleural effusions, uh, and the shape of the heart as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also that little-known sign called Westermark sign, which is an area of oligemia. So it's where the blood flow has been stopped by the embolism. Um, and also you might get a prominent pulmonary artery. Um, so, yeah, so um, aside from that, um, how are you going to manage him now? You've, going to, you've, done, an, you've done a VBG. Um, his CO2 is slightly elevated at 7 um, but he's not acidotic, base excess bicarb, or completely fine, but his lactate's 3.5. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go back to my A, B, C, D, E here. Mm. A is fine. Yep. B, he's struggling, uh, but his oxygenation is satisfactory on what you're giving him. Uh, C is tolerable. He's got a blood pressure that's reasonable. We know he's got a sinus tachy. Uh, D, you said he's alert and orientated. E, he's afebrile. We've had a look at his bloods. Would you would give antibiotics? If... <laughs> Sorry. Would I give antibiotics? Yes. I probably would. Mm -hmm. um, I think most people coming through the front door with that picture get gets them as well. I think there's a view rightly or wrongly that actually giving antibiotics in this scenario is not going to be harmful um but if this is an atypical presentation of sepsis could be helpful um so i would probably give him a shot of something broad spectrum to cover pneumonia and the lactate of 3.5 so that could be driven by a few things so the hypoxia um He's obviously working quite hard to breathe. Whether there's some 
ischemia, perhaps, from his heart working a bit harder and also mm-hmm. his kidney failure. The temptation would be to give fluids. Um, mm. And again, I think most people that come through the front door in this picture, even before this pandemic, probably did get you know, a litre of fluid before being referred to the medics. Mm. Um, and it's not unreasonable, again, given the picture that we've had. I'm presuming he, he may look a bit dry if he's not been eating and drinking that mm. much because of his appetite loss and he mm. has lost weight. Um, but as a medic, I would be a bit cautious because it already sounds like he's, you know, his circulation is struggling if he's got pedal edema and bibasal crackles. So, Okay, so your chest X-ray's done. Um, it's finally been round. You've given some antibiotics, you've given some fluids, um, and he goes around for his chest X-ray. Um, and the chest X-ray does actually show a bulky tumour in the right lung. There isn't any comment um, on the report about COVID or the, you know, the classic sort of adult respiratory distress syndrome-like findings of the bilateral infiltrates. But at the bases of the lungs, there does look like there are some changes. Um, there's some bi-basal atelectasis, although it's not typical of the COVID changes. Mm. Does that change anything for you? Um, not really. I mean, again, I I can see there. You know, I've, I've met some people who would say it's not COVID. Mm-hmm. There's an alternative diagnosis here for what he's presented mm. with. Um, you know de-escalate him to a non-COVID area. Um, I would still be unsure of, of that. You can't be 100% certain. Mm. Um, ideally, you know, you'd want a swab result that would take forever to come back. <laughs> ideally, again, you'd want a CT scan, but, you know, difficult to get in busy centres without, mm. um, you know, a dearth of radiologists. Um, in terms of the immediate management, though, it, it just changes that kind of mood and that discussion Mm. you have with the patient Mm. because, you know, we've gone from something potentially reversible um, to something that is most likely going to be terminal. Yeah. Um, So I would, before anything else, actually, I would tell the patient what we've seen on the X-ray and what are his thoughts on what we do next. Now, what I noticed with this um, case was when I was first given the notes, the diagnosis at the bottom of the notes was, guess what, COVID. Um, and what, what I've been finding, and it's, it's just one of those things that happens, is huge amount of cognitive biases are at play at the moment, in that most people who come to hospital with shortness of breath, they are diagnosed with COVID. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but actually... These patients will also have other diagnoses, not just COVID. And what had happened in this gentleman is he'd been seen by his GP who diagnosed COVID, paramedics, COVID, A&E, COVID. And it's that typical diagnostic momentum where a diagnosis gets given to a patient and it's really difficult to get rid of that diagnosis then. And he may have had COVID, but what's actually being missed is the fact that this tumour had recurred and that may be was why he'd had the weight loss and why he looked so awful. 
He was very hypoxic, which could be COVID or a PE. He had a right upper lobe tumour and he had a distended neck veins. Hmm. Okay. So he's probably got superior vena cava obstruction. Uh, again, making this even more critical slash terminal. Yeah. And actually, whether he has COVID or not is completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a man that's going to to die, essentially, isn't it? So um, when I saw him, um, I thought, okay, it could be COVID because you, you have that mindset that because we're in this COVID pandemic, that that's what you think of, shortness of breath, hypoxia, difficulty breathing. Um, and then I sat down and you normally go, right, he's 80 years old. He's had lung cancer. He had palliative radiotherapy. He's got shortness of breath. He's got a productive cough. He's got a high respiratory rate. And he's got this distended neck vein on the um, right-hand side. And then with a different sort of aspect from the end of the bed, you think, actually, his face is a little bit flushed. That must be because mm. he's got COVID. And then you sort of try and rationalise everything to put it in the COVID perspective. But what I did do is I requested a CT um, yeah. thorax because I thought, do you know what, I've got there's something, you have that sort of gut instinct that COVID doesn't fit with this. I think there's something else going on. And he had an urgent CT, which was done within 30 minutes. And the CT report showed complete occlusion of the SVC at its origin Gosh. by a 6.4 centimetre invasive centrally necrotic soft tissue lesion. And the mid and the distal component of the SVC um, was also partially effaced with drainage from the azygous vein. He had a small right-sided pleural effusion. He had some enlarged lymph nodes. He also had a right adrenal gland lesion and some sclerosis in his vertebral body suggestive of metastases. So the diagnosis, as you correctly said, was superior vena carval syndrome. And it was, I have to say, it was one of those cases where it would have been so easy to have gone, it's covid um, because he also sounded like it was COVID, but for some reason it just didn't sound quite right. And it goes back to the full history and examining a patient. Yeah, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more because I, I think I think that this bias that you've talked about, is, mm. it affects all of us. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. for some reason, the first thing we, and it's almost like we're told to, you know, the yeah. first thing <laughs> yeah. we think about is, is this COVID or not? Yeah. Yep. Um, and sometimes, despite our best efforts, it, it's quite hard to get rid of that from your mindset. Yeah. Um, but we mustn't forget that the people that catch COVID and are likely to suffer from its consequences are those with all of the underlying health problems, which, you, you know, in this case, mustn't forget that, you know, lung, someone who's got an incurable lung cancer, of mm. course, they're going to be at risk of you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, anyone who's in the elderly population is at, is at risk of these things. And mm. just because we're in the midst of a pandemic doesn't mean that stuff goes away. No. Um, and I, th- I think not just us, but I'm pretty sure every clinician here is, has had that wrestling of, you know, trying not to be blindsided by what we're being told in the news and 
you know, mm. told on our protocols and the endless emails we have about doffing and donning and, mm. you know, who gets a CT, who gets de-escalated, et cetera. It, mm. It's a bit overwhelming. And actually at the heart of what we, we do as clinicians is actually, you know, take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Uh, if, I think that's really well said. And I think this case highlighted it for me in that it was, I don't know how many days I've done and you see so many people with the same presenting complaint. Um, and you've already got the anchoring bias because somebody tells you they've got COVID before you've even gone to see the patient. Mm. They're in the COVID area of the hospital, therefore they've already got COVID. So you've got so many biases going on. Being conscious of those cognitive biases is so important. So as you're aware of your own biases, so when you go in, you think around and think, what else could it be? Yeah. And that's certainly ask the you, case um, in this situation. Can I ask you a, a slightly probing question here? Go on then. Did you get a chance uh, to have a chat with a patient to ask him what he thought was going on? I did. So um, I didn't look at his notes before I went in. Um, so I didn't know we'd had lung malignancy, which is I probably should have done, to be honest. Um, but it was one of those where you're told to go and see a sick uh, a sick individual. So you, you go in straight away. Um, so I did say to him, what do you think is going on? Um, what are you most worried about? And his main concern was COVID. Mm. Um, and I've found that with a lot of individuals I've been seeing. I've been working in ED all day today. And again, I would say, so are you, what are you really concerned about? And it's COVID. And you speak to the relatives and the family on the phone and it's COVID. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That bias isn't just for us clinicians, it's, no. it's, it's for the public as well. So just to go back then to this gentleman with his SVC obstruction, um, investigations, he'd have the chest x-ray and the CT, um, which picked up the diagnosis. Any other investigations that you want to do at this stage? I mean... We don't have his clotting back yet, do we? No. So clotting, I have got that for you. So clotting was fine. So his prothrombin time was normal. Okay. I mean, again, it goes back to the expectations of, of him. Mm. What does he want? Mm -hmm. um, and then us as his parent team, what can we do? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'd want to speak to the radiologist to see is there anything salvageable here okay yeah i mean obviously with svc obstruction if you catch it early potentially you can stent it um mm -hmm. to prevent complete occlusion mm -hmm. um you can maybe i mean hypothetically speak to the oncology team about um whether he'd be suitable for any immediate treatment such okay. as you know high dose dexamethasone mm -hmm. um but actually, given his history, mm -hmm. um, I would be, you know, having pretty early conversations about a palliative approach to things. Mm. And yeah, so because I didn't, I'd never met this gentleman before. And because I didn't know of the type of cancer that he had or how long it had been there for, I actually went down the more aggressive management whether that was right or wrong, I, I don't know. It was um, a weekend day, it was a Saturday. And um, obviously radiotherapy is an option, but I did give him 10 milligrams of dexamethasone. Um, and then I prescribed him four milligrams every six hours after this. I did speak to the um, oncology team and they agreed with that plan 
for that time being. Um, his airway was secure, which was good. So he didn't need intubation or ventilation or anything like that, which is really good. Um, and then again, as you mentioned, is he going to be a candidate for percutaneous endovascular stenting? Interestingly, um, this gentleman did go for stenting and um, he had occlusion of both subclavian veins and both internal jugular veins. So it was pretty significant obstruction. But he, he did only have very mild symptoms of SVC obstruction. He, he was short of breath. Um, but interestingly, that typical sign where you um, lean forward and um, things get worse or, you know, you lie flat. And again, the, the flushing and the shortness of breath gets worse weren't there. For some reason, it was they weren't able to stent. It was too difficult. Um, and therefore, they advised anticoagulation and steroids to try and attempt recannulization of the vessels. But they weren't able to place the SVC stent. So they tried but didn't manage it. So it was, it was a difficult case. Um, I'm just going to go over a little bit on the etiology about um, SVC obstruction. Yeah. Um, and then I'll sort of finish by talking about what happened to our gentleman. So we know that the etiology of superior vena carval obstruction in about 65% of people is malignancy. Normally lung cancer. Can you think of any other malignancies that might cause SVC obstruction? Um, I mean, any head and neck cancers. Yeah. Um, I think... Any, anything that, I mean, cancers are prothrombotic anyway, um, mm -hmm. but you can also get SVC obstruction from clots themselves rather Ex than yep. extrinsic tumour. Mm. For, for some reason in my head, everything's saying small cell cancer, but that's a, a type of lung cancer. I mean, n not cancer itself. You, you know, you could have benign deformities mm. perhaps. Yeah. Um, trauma even. Yeah. So just going back to what you said about small cell lung cancer, um, we know lung cancer is the most common cause. Um, the majority are non-small cell lung cancer, and then about 25% are small cell. Mm. Um, lymphomas can cause extrinsic compression and rarely thymomas and germ cell tumours. Um, benign, you are absolutely right, SVC thrombosis. So if you've got that prothrombotic condition, um, pacemakers insertion radiotherapy, sarcoid, so sort of things that I guess we're causing with the pacemakers and the radiotherapy can cause it. Now, we know that the SVC drains into the right atrium and it drains all of the blood from the head, the neck, the upper thorax and the upper extremities. So if that's blocked, that's why physiologically you're getting all of that engorgement of the veins. So the head's swollen, the neck's swollen. And you get these collateral veins because if the blood can't go into the right atrium via the azygous vein, it forms these collateral vessels. And that's why some patients, you get that typical dilated vessels on the anterior chest wall. If it's significantly bad and you sort of get that obstruction after the azygous vein, you also get the dilated vessels on the abdomen as well. And again, patients present with, with distended arm, neck veins, distended veins on the abdomen um, and also the upper chest. And sometimes they can have congested mucous membranes. Um, although, to be fair, I haven't actually seen many patients with this condition. Um, so um, 
talked a little bit about etiology. Um, talked a little bit about um, investigations. A big risk factor is smoking, because if we know that lung cancer is one of the biggest causes um, of it, then obviously by not smoking or stopping smoking, that may help prevention potentially. Um, Management-wise, we talked about securing the airway, dexamethasone and radiotherapy. However, what about if it's caused by iatrogenic? So, for example, you might have um, thrombosis due to central venous catheter or pacemaker insertion. Would that management be any different? I mean, you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd have to have a discussion with whoever's going to remove it yeah uh about whether you cover them with anticoagulants because of the risk of developing clots around the occlusion or not because Mm -hmm. you're if you know particularly if you're removing quite a large line yeah um you know you might obviously you're probably definitely going to be doing it under as controlled conditions as possible in theaters Mm, yeah yeah, wouldn't be wanting to do that on the acute take. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's, it's getting into really specialist areas now, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it may be an infective cause as well. So rare cases, you've got aspergillosis or histoplasmosis. And again, I guess if that's a cause, you can use antibiotics and again, get very specialist input. With our gentleman, um, because we couldn't recannulize with a stent, he had clexane, one milligram BD, and he continued with the steroids and he was sent home. He went home for, for five days and then he presented again with one day history of sudden onset of left iliac fossa pain with rebound guarding and left psoas irritation. Couldn't extend his left leg. CRP was normal. Everything was normal. What could be going on? Hmm. So two things I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. he's either got some clots in the blood vessels of the abdomen, mm-hmm. so he's, you know, may have some ischemic bowel, uh, or more likely if he's been put on a blood thinner uh, and he said he can't flex his leg, then I'm worried about an intraperitoneal bleed, uh, yeah. possibly compressing, yeah, compressing something. Yeah, excellent. So he did have a large left-sided um, retroperitoneal hematoma. Gosh. which involved the left iliopsoas muscle and retroperitoneal space. And it was 20 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. So it was very big. And basically, this was thought to be due to the anticoagulation which he'd been on. Um, and his haemoglobin had dropped, probably consistent with obviously the bleed that he'd had. He was very well with it. Anticoagulation was stopped and he was discharged home. Um, and a plan was put in place with conversation with the individual and also with family and the oncologist and actually um, he didn't want any further investigations any further treatment and wanted to just carry on at home because he actually felt quite well at this point and was able to get back in his garden and enjoy the sunshine so he was happy that his quality of life was you know good that's incredible that he's yeah. gone home. I know. Uh, yeah, it's just, amazing. Just shows what I know. <laughs> I thought that story you read out to me, I was like, oh, gosh, this does not look good. But just shows, I, just, I suppose, actually, this just shows that no matter how bleak 
or terminal the situation mm. may be, mm. there's always something that can be done. Absolutely. Yeah. His COVID swab was negative, <laughs> by the way, which is interesting. Anything to comment on, on that, Hussein? No, thank you for that case. Uh, it, it does resonate with me a lot, actually, because uh, I've seen many cases and hopefully we'll get the chance to cover this mm. another time, but people who come in on the COVID pathway but actually have severe problems completely not related to infection or or this virus in particular. Um, and it's been nice to discuss how to overcome biases and you know just taking that moment to step back and say that you know this is not right um you know why does this person have such a high oxygen requirement why does this person's neck veins look a bit distended or their face is a bit swollen you know there's we say this on every episode of <laughs> this podcast but you know just take the history and the examination yeah. <laughs> and look at it with you know no distractions and and you'll get your diagnosis there ignore yeah. the noise around you yes and, and you can't go wrong in the hospital uh at any time there are so many people who are experts in their fields that can help yes you know, so, definitely yeah so for this gentleman you mm. know obviously you're seeing him on the front line with the emergency mm. department colleagues um at some stage through this this process this presentation you've spoken to his oncologists You've spoken to the radiologists about his SVC obstruction. Mm. Um, you may speak to the haematologists about the right anticoagulation. Yeah. Mm. Um, most certainly would have spoken to the palliative care specialist as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and not just doctors here, nursing staff, you know, everyone involved with this. And it, it just shows that actually you're not on your own to no. manage this patient. Definitely. And I hope that you've also taken away some learning points as well. There isn't really any nice guidance on how we manage SVC obstruction. There's a little bit about superior vena cava stenting in malignant disease um, from the Interventional Radiological Society of Europe. Um, so again, it is exactly as you said, getting hold of the right specialists and you know seeing the right person in the right place at the right time, definitely. Yeah, and I, th I think uh, for any registrars uh, that are out there, when you join a new trust, um, and you're going to be doing the take, it's always good just to find out what your radiology department offers um, from an interventional side of things, not just, you know, for this type of problem, but things like, you know, uh, thrombectomies. Um, uh, sometimes you can, you know, any, any presentation where you might need them out of hours, it's always good to know beforehand uh, what yeah. kind of service you have. <laughs> Fabulous. So thank you so much, Hussein, for joining us. I've missed you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Yay. Um, if you want to get in touch, please email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or you can tweet me at Amy Burbridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Hussein. Bye. That was a great case. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh.